Legally Vocal from Aperio with Nicholas Dadamar. Conversations with key players in the legal industry. Hi and welcome to the latest episode of Legally Vocal. I'm Nino Dadamar, the founder and CEO of Aperio. For this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with somebody I've known for many years, Casey Flaherty, the co-founder and chief strategy officer at LexFusion. We covered everything from why in-house lawyers and outside counsel are more similar than they think, how throwing tech at a problem is a potential avoidance mechanism, plus the semantics and delights of whiskey and bourbon. Anyway, without further ado, I hope you enjoy. So with me in the virtual studio today is Casey Flaherty, co-founder and chief strategy officer at LexFusion. Welcome to Legally Vocal, Casey. First off, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? I started as a litigator uh, in California. I then moved in-house. While I was in-house, I drifted over to what they are today calling legal ops. At the time, Clock was still a book club meeting in Dungeness conference rooms at Google and NetApp. I began writing and speaking quite a bit on the application of process and technology to the delivery of legal services. For two years, I wrote the column for the Association of Corporate Counsel on legal technology. I ended up writing a guidebook for the ACC on outside counsel management, specifically focused on innovating in legal service delivery. All the writing and attendant speaking resulted in me moving into consulting. I consulted on legal operations, process improvement, technology, law department transformation, et cetera, mostly for law departments, but also some law firms. One of those law firms was Baker McKenzie, which asked me to come in and build out the world's largest legal project management team. I did that for two years. It was a wonderful experience. Uh, and when the build was done, uh, I came back to the ecosystem at LexFusion, which is a much longer explanation, uh, but is very much an, an ecosystem play. And that, that, that's where I am today. I spend much of my time uh, at the intersection of legal innovation, law departments, and law firms, trying to help everybody find problem-solution fit. So you're the, the grease in the legal technology wheel, trying to make it all run smoothly. Well, my, my, my partner, Joe Borstein, says that we're, we're here to grease the gears of commerce. And that is absolutely true. Although my role is slightly more consultative. Someone uh, was once introducing me and said, when they hear the term thought leader, all they can think of is vacuous windbag. Uh, and w with no further ado, I'd like to uh, welcome a great thought leader, Casey Flaherty. And so consulting and thought leadership are more of my role at, at LexFusion, but we collectively definitely uh, grease the gears of commerce. Uh, so we can call you Chief uh, Vacuous Windbag, uh, if that's a preferable title, uh, but we'll, we'll, we'll stick to co-founder for now. And going back to some of your previous experience from your legal days, you've worked on both sides of the fence, i.e. You know, both in-house and private practice. What are some of the fundamental differences in the type of lawyer that you need to be slash are expected to be, depending on which side of the fence you're on? I'm not sure that the differences are as big as they might appear. People who go in-house will tell you how important it is to be aligned with the business and that that is the, that is the big differentiator and that they do not have 
an economic interest in the hours they bill that providing legal services is not a business unto itself. And therefore, it's a different set of incentives. It's a different relationship. Uh, I actually think that in-house lawyers and outside counsel are, are much closer than, than either of them know. I once wrote a long piece uh, entitled The Legal Theory of Value that pointed out these similarities. So huh. frankly, I know that people want to distinguish the two. Uh, I actually see them both as being part of the same value chain. Drucker has some great lines about the lines between organizations being convenient fictions, but from a value chain perspective, they really are fictions. They serve the same ultimate goal, the same end client, and frankly, suffer from many of the same pathologies in terms of the way they think about legal work, the way they think about lawyer time. I, I know that's an impolitic answer, and I was, I was supposed to actually distinguish them for you. But I think there are more similarities than there are differences. You'll make friends at Aperio when you start talking about Peter Drucker as the entire product uh, and engineering team uh, seem to vaguely have him as a pinup around there. So yes, uh, including uh, things that get measured, get managed, etc. I like it. Uh, appeals to me as well. Touching on some of your, you mentioned obviously your consultancy work, you've done project management work, product advisory and strategy work. There's a, there's a, a general theme of problem solving. Um, has that kind of problem to be solved always been a motivation for you? Yes, I have a massive focus on productivity and thinking about scalability, because for me, that is the fundamental challenge we face moving forward. Uh, that's not to discount the value of legal advice and legal expertise, but that's not where we're improving. I don't think the lawyers today are smarter than the lawyers 20 years ago, but I do think there are fewer lawyers today relative to the amount of legal complexity in the world, uh, and especially my world, the operational context for business. And thus, it's not just about legal expertise. It's about delivering that expertise at scale and pace. How do we leverage that expertise through process and technology? And that, for me, is the fundamental problem I'm interested in solving, which doesn't mean that other problems aren't important, but that is what really gets my, my wheels turning and where I orient my thinking. Getting slightly ahead of myself, do you think that we can't do a podcast and not talk about COVID? What impact has the pandemic had on people's appetite and desire and need and want for be it legal tech or, or the kind of solutions yeah, that that you're talking about? Not solutions, sorry, but kind of problems that you're trying to solve. So it's like the complexity is ever growing, but do you think that people's appetite to solve via process, people, technology, etc., is greater now than it was two years ago? I don't know about their appetite because they are busier now than they are two years ago. And so hitting the pause button in order to do the hard work of changing how work gets done, there's less appetite for that. So not necessarily appetite, but there is a recognition that it's possible. The way that we transitioned almost overnight to work from home is a testament to how quickly practices and minds can change. And the traditional view of change management is you change minds to change behavior. But almost all the modern scholarship suggests that for the most part, 
you need to change behavior to change minds. And so we saw a massive change in behavior. And I do think many minds about what is possible and how quickly. Whether or not there's an attendant appetite is a different question. And I think there's that's a mixed bag. Not because people are uninterested or change averse or want to revert to the status quo, but simply because they're busy. It's interesting talking about how we changed overnight. That was out of necessity. And, and the old expression of necessity is the mother of invention. It enabled that to a certain extent. It's like, then is it a necessity to start doing other things? No. But is it the right thing to do? Yes. And so it comes down to the appetite piece that you just mentioned. And it's been our experience. We've seen the same thing you just described. Um, people are so busy to pick your head up and think about process or something else that's not directly correlated to the stuff you have to do in the hours that you have to do them. It's hard. It takes a certain type of person for sure. You mentioned LexFusion is your obviously most recent venture where you are today um, and something that you helped to co-found. What was the what was the spark? You know, the motivation that helped you to to create this? A, a desire to return to the broader ecosystem as great a time as I had at Baker McKenzie and as proud as I am of what we accomplished. It was it was heads down. It was a long, uh, arduous build, and I I missed being a part of the broader ecosystem. And I said, Lex, as I said, LexFusion is an ecosystem play. In our first year, our first full calendar year, we had over 2,600 meetings with something like 250 law firms and 320 law departments. Those aren't the exact numbers, but they're close. We did more market listening than anyone uh, at the same time that we did a considerable amount of market scanning, seeing what was new and what was interesting. And so we were not only able to come away with a fairly unique view of what's going on in the market, where the market is is headed, um, but we were able to help a large number of people, our our friends, our colleagues, again, with find problem solution fit. And sometimes the, the solution was a member company of LexFusion. Often it wasn't. Often the best solution we could offer someone is an introduction to a peer who is just a little bit further along on the same journey. Yeah. Taking someone who just bought a particular tool and connecting them with someone who had just finished implementing that tool can save them an enormous amount of time because we tend to always make the same mistakes unless we take advantage of our collective wisdom. Yeah. Before we go into the broader discussions about the legal world, uh, we have a, a little segment here where we thought we'd find some info on our guests that you won't find on their CVs with five quick fire questions. So Casey, if you're ready. Ready. Perfect. So question one, messy desk or clean desk? Messy. Nice. Uh, I actually thought it'd be the other way around, but I have the only, we have, we have 39 clean desks in the office and one messy and that one messy is mine. Question number two, uh, are you a saver or a spender? Spender. God, you might be my long lost American brother. Uh, question number three, ocean or mountains? I reject your false binary. I'm from Los Angeles, California. <laughs> you can have both in the same day. All right. Uh, well... Where I live in England, you can have neither uh, because we are neither near the ocean. And when you get to the ocean, it's full of pebbles and the mountains are in Scotland. 
So there you go. I'm going to have loads of people complaining about that. Anyway, question number four, uh, form or function? Function. Question number five. I just thought of a bonus question, actually. But question number five, NFL or NBA? NBA. Bonus question number six, whiskey or bourbon? Bourbon. Don't ask how I knew he'd say that. Right. The, although that that said, bourbon is a subset of whiskey. And <laughs> I don't need the I legal almost, answer. I want, I, I, well, I, I want to amend my answer because if I choose whiskey, I get bourbon as well as rye and m- many other things I enjoy. So if the question was scotch or whiskey or bourbon, the answer is bourbon. You know, I think we cancel the rest of this and and we just go through. We'll go Japanese. Ooh, love Japanese. So good. I went to university in Scotland and I sort of have a secret bottle of uh, of Japanese whiskey in it. And, and I don't want anyone to know because it would be frowned upon, but it's so good. Anyway. Way, way to keep your secret by publicly proclaiming it on a podcast you want as many people as possible to listen to. My friends don't like the sound of my voice, uh, so they won't be listening. It's only the lawyers. Well, thank you for giving a little insight into your world and I suppose my world, uh, Casey. We're now coming back to that world of legal. So the first question is about LexFusion and, and you guys help organizations to modernize their legal practice and operations. Um, and have you found, we kind of touched on this earlier, but have you found people are more open to this now than they were pre-pandemic? Uh, or are we, as you say, are they busier than they were before? And therefore, whilst they're open to it, it's uh, don't have the time. They are more open to it and find it harder to make the time. There has been a substantial recognition of the need to modernize, to scale, where there used to be debates about the importance of innovation. Those have largely subsided, and now it tends to be a question of bandwidth and budget, with bandwidth being the much more prominent constraint. That was going to be my next question. Which one is it, bandwidth or budget? Which is the number one and number two? Okay, so bandwidth. So it's time, not money that's causing people, which has been our experience if we, if we think about the world of, well, general corporates, but particularly private equity in other places, that people have never been busier, frankly. On, on the other hand, do you think that digital fatigue has made anyone want to stick with the status quo? Or do you think change the change is permanent? I, I don't, I be- believe that there is change fatigue. I don't, think it makes anyone want to stick with the status quo. I think it just adds to, we often say inertia, but but I think we were dealing with with something much harder than inertia, gravity. A lot of these changes uh, require quite a bit of fuel to achieve escape velocity, or otherwise they just get pulled back uh, to the center. And recognizing that gravity and being tired, it's much harder for many people to start because they've already tried and been disappointed with with their results. Because even when you achieve escape velocity, the actual payload that makes it into space relative to the fuel expended to get it there can be pretty disappointing. Often people want and have experience of of wanting tech to solve things by itself. And actually, of course, it's often a combination and you need to invest a certain degree of time uh, to enable that tech to actually work. You get the initial wow factor from the switch on, um, but it's kind of what you do next, which really defines it, um, which I, I think is a a broad parallel from escape velocity and payloads versus fuel loads, et cetera. But yours sounded much smarter. I, I would agree with you that a preference for tech-first solutioning is one of the many cultural challenges we face. 
and people are attracted to tech-first solutioning because it seems easy, that the number one thing we need to do is buy the technology, that, that, that procuring the technology is the end of the journey as opposed to the beginning. Though the best studies we have, though quite old at this point, suggest that for every dollar you spend on technology acquisition, you need to spend 10 on personnel training and process redesign. And absolutely no one wants to hear that because buying the tech is hard enough. Pro procurement is a pain. Installation is a, is a pain. Actual implementation and adoption are very, very heavy lifts for most of the technology out there. There are a few pieces of tech that will fit seamlessly into existing workflows and simply be better, but they are few and far between. Yeah. Speaking of, well, A, smart things and tech, uh, you've developed a theory that throwing tech at a problem in the legal world is, a, is an avoidance mechanism. What exactly do you mean by it being an avoidance mechanism? You're familiar with action bias. Something must be done. This is something. Therefore, we must do this. As I've said, there is a recognition of the need to innovate, not for innovation's sake, but because of the scale of our challenges requires scaled solutions to tackle them. We don't argue the scale point anymore. It's simply a question of, of how do we get there? And the answer of how do we get there is quite hard. It involves an enormous amount of cultural realignment and strategic rethinking, all of which is very painful, very time consuming, and very risky. The hope, uh, and it's the hope that kills you, is that there's some piece of tech that's going to come along and just make it all go away. On the kind of tech and procurers of tech, is it a collective responsibility to realize that and deal with it? Or is it, a, is it on the vendor themselves or is it on the buyer? I mean, I, I suppose you would say a, a good legal ops uh, you know, director would, would realize this and sort of, if you like, price it in. Um, who's, whose kind of responsibility do you think it is? The trouble is that it's everybody's responsibility. You can buy the best piece of tech in the world for your particular problem and know exactly where it fits into your process or how the process should be uh, redesigned to maximize the tech. And if you don't get buy-in from the stakeholders who will actually be using the tech, uh, it's, it's just another icon on their desktop or it's just another plug-in in something they already use. It's just another button. It's just another feature that lays fallow. And so it, that's why I focused on culture first. Yeah. We need a, a culture of adaptation, a culture of adoption, and that runs counter to the culture of getting things done. There's a great Harvard Business Review article on, oh, I forget what it's called, it, the new era of projects, or but the bottom line, the, the contrast is between operations, doing what we do and doing it well, and projects, changing how we do things, and these two run counter to each other. Projects get in the way of operations and operations get in the way of projects and striking the right balance is extremely important and extremely hard. Yeah. And we, and we in legal for understandable reasons, and frankly, it's not just legal. There, there's data that suggests that this is institutional at, at corporations, government, anywhere. We all are biased towards operations and yet projects are becoming more and more important. I wanted to ask you about 
a professor who you may know, Professor Dan Katz, he suggested that lawyers are complexity engineers. Is it therefore a bit of a paradox for lawyers slash complexity engineers to buy into simple tech solutions? I, I don't think so. I'm quite familiar with Dan and consume his scholarship and think that it is not nearly as appreciated as it should be. I'm so happy you, you asked about him and about his work. Dan doesn't suggest that lawyers are out there trying to create complexity, although some of us absolutely do. We are solving for complexity. And where, where Dan's scholarship is so powerful, and I feel like an imposter even trying to summarize it, so I strongly recommend people go directly to the source, he has put out all kinds of measures of how the operating environment for business has become more complex. I think it's Noah Simple who referred to it as a law, a law thick world. And we are seeing exponential increases in legal complexity. Uh, as economies grow and become more sophisticated, statutes, regulations, administrative rules, these are how governments respond. This is how they grapple with growing economic complexity by creating increasing regulatory complexity. And, and this is at multiple levels. So you know, local, state, federal, international. And so these rules don't just accrete, they intersect, they overlap, and in many cases, they conflict. And that's even when they're well-written. Some of them are painfully ambiguous. And so the yeah. legal complexity has increased massively, and the need to navigate that complexity has increased in a corresponding amount, but the supply of legal expertise has not. So that's what Dan means, I believe, when he talks about lawyers being complexity engineers. We help solve for that complexity, and it should appeal to us to use the simplest means possible, the minimum viable dose to, to tackle that, that complexity. I like that uh, concept of the, the MVD, the minimum viable dose uh, and, and the simplest path from A to B and navigating that landscape of complexity, which is ever growing as the world gets more complex. I, you know, I hadn't thought about it in quite that way. We throw a regulation and, uh, and, and laws against it. Uh, and it's not all joined up by any means. And as you say, there's conflicts within it. And so you need a navigator, a guide, a complexity engineer, that makes a lot of sense. Professor Casey Flaherty. And much of it is new. Meta lost, what, $285 billion in market cap? And when you read why, the discussion is about regulatory headwinds. It's about a showdown with the, the EU uh, over whether Facebook can operate there due to privacy laws. It's about fe federal regulators discussing how they're going to regulate the metaverse. None of this existed 10 years ago. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, maybe some of it in nascent forms, but not, not like it does today. This is an entirely new world of, of new complexities. That's not a normative statement. It's an empirical statement. You can have a favorable opinion of stricter data privacy laws and still recognize that that creates more complexity that has to be navigated. Yeah, and the business world 
commercial world, whatever you want to call it, that is always going to be presumably pushing up against that, right? As you, it's almost feeling for not for weak spots, but I guess for its own way of sailing close to the close to the wind as to kind of what is and is not acceptable. On that, on Meta and the loss, someone told me, and I, I have not fact-checked this, but that one-day loss was the equivalent value of the entirety of McDonald's. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's kind of pretty hard to get your... What did you say? It was $285 billion was wiped off the value. I can't really get my head around that number. That is so vast. It It, it is, and this is... For me, this is a critical point because it's one of the ways in which the conversation around legal has been sidetracked. So it it is the case that for a long time, no one paid attention to legal spend and that there is considerable waste in the way legal services are delivered. But we have overcorrected to a view that centers savings as a concept. We're, we are going to spend less in raw dollars on legal. To me, this is insane. Yeah, uh, Legal spend at a mature company is 0.5% of revenue. Cutting your outside counsel fees by 20% is 0.01% of, of revenue. That doesn't mean that you don't bring discipline and rigor to managing the money you spend because it, it will be finite. But instead of more with less, the idea that legal budget should be reduced, we need to reorient the conversation of more for less, that is, we need a higher yield from every dollar we spend, combined with more for more, we are going to need more money because there are so many net new complexities that have a material impact on the business. Is there anyone out there who thinks that Meta should be spending less on privacy advice, that they should be screwing around with whether they're paying $1,200 an hour or $800 an hour? Sure. Someone somewhere should care about that in terms of what is the market value of the services that we're buying. If you're spending enough money that you should have discipline and rigor and being sure that money is being spent judiciously and wisely. But the idea that a primary focus should be spending less money in that area seems insane to me. That they should be spending the funds they have better Absolutely. And that's not a comment. I actually have no no visibility into how they how they spend their money. I'm just using them as a prominent example and, and stand in as we've seen so much of this more for less discussion. It sounds like you're a bit of a, a product plant for Perio, which you are not. And I think you can attest to that. So this is something this is a drum I've been banging for so long uh, is and we used to, we, we, you know, we're a legal spend management tool. You know, it's about getting visibility over spend, seeing spend ahead of the invoice. The, the old world of e-billing is so caught up in, in some process improvements for sure, but also in terms of reducing legal spend by, you know, outside council guidelines and other bits and pieces. You know, we can do all that stuff too. That's interesting and all the rest of it. But actually, you know, we used to, it's been a long time since we ever led with like, we will save you money. Uh, at a perio, we, we can do that. But much more interesting is the control. And control means lots of different things. 
you know, it could be as simple as understanding what you spent last year and who you spent it with and what you spent it on and how that's going to impact this year or at least help you predict this year. But it could also be unlocking bits of spend that are hidden through shadow spend, all kinds of bits and pieces. But then it's about using that data to draw conclusions and make inferences about um, how do I drive efficient and most effective spend? To your point about how do I get more from each dollar? Not reduce spend, but more from each dollar. And interestingly, we did a survey at the end of last year. Uh, this was in the private capital world. And for the first time since we've been doing the survey for a little while, but for the first time since I can remember, this was obviously more around private equity, but saving money, reducing legal spend, sorry, was the lowest ranked desire for the year ahead by legal leaders. Uh, the highest was getting uh, some control. And there was a recognition that they've never been busier and therefore that the lawyers are more valued than they were before. They've never been busier. And that is a trend that's going to continue. Therefore, reducing legal spend is completely counter to what they're trying to achieve. So I'm really, you said it very eloquently, but it's... Um, People always think, oh, you know, more for less, or I've got to reduce spend. And yes, those those can be kind of outcomes, but but it's it shouldn't be the core driver, and it's not for any of our clients. I would say. Well, and again, more for less is fine because you want to you want to get a higher yield for every dollar of spend. But more with less implies that your total spend is going down. That's a really palatable fiction. If you step into a legal ops role and you say, we're going to save money because we can measure that, and you come in and you reduce total spend by 20%, that's something that you can brag about. Uh, it's something that stakeholders and, say, the finance department want to hear. And you can, get, you can certainly get quick wins. That said, it's not sustainable, and it doesn't serve the core mission of delivering business value to the enterprise. And so I absolutely understand the appeal of saving centric narratives, but it is counterproductive to appropriate value storytelling, which is how do the activities of the law department contribute to the value of the enterprise? And saying we're going to cut outside council spend by 20% is less than a rounding error most places, even if it's a lot of raw dollars. And you are setting yourself up for a lot of pain because what are you going to do for your next magic trick? Yeah. And what it's are you going to do pony. as... Yeah, completely. Well, and, and what are you going to do as the demands on the department continue to increase when, when you came in and said, oh, we don't actually need all this money because we've been wasting it for years. The, the second part is somewhat true in that there's a lot of waste in legal service delivery. But the first part is almost never true. And even if you don't get it, you should be consistently arguing for more resources. I know what it's like to argue for resources inside of a large organization. And you don't get everything you need, let alone everything you want. And then you have to make do with what you do get. That completely understood. But suggesting that you need less is, is a bad plan. Yeah, the the idea that you know you want to grow that team, etc. I think we're again anecdotally from our clients, the ability to point to data to say, this is what we're doing over here. You know, we could really use a body or two here, which would have an impact on the spend, but also make us a, a ton more efficient. Versus the kind of like, 
I feel or I want or this or the other. Base, base it, especially if you're having to go to a CFO, speak the language of the CFO and talk about how some of that impact will be in terms of you know the the um, the outcome side of it uh, or the numbers or whatever you need to do. But um, you invoked Drucker earlier. What what gets measured get managed. I I urge you to look at any of the surveys about what metrics law departments actually have at their disposal. I think the most recent is the Blickstein LDO survey. All the top ones relate to outside counsel spend and savings. Only 51% of departments even track their internal spend. And when you look at measures like cycle times, it's in the teens or the 20s. Yeah, Most of them are not equipped to have a conversation about what it is they do and why it is they do it. Most of them when it comes to their measurements are almost solely focused on on external spend is a sort of fixation the difference in um being a lawyer in, in private practice or in house and there's a sort of uh oh you know i went in house and i no longer have to record my time um and i was actually chatting with uh, obviously no one loves to have to kind of record their time especially if it's in increments of six minutes but one of our clients that is a gc of, of network rail the rail operator here in the uk and and a guy called Dan Kane, and, and he was talking about how they do record. Now, they're not down to the same granularity, but they do record that time because they want to know, what A, what people are doing to a certain extent. They trust them, but they want to be able to combine that. It's, kind of, you know, it's in, in internal time plus external time equals the actual time it takes to get something done. And he's like, if you've only got one side of the coin, you're not really getting the full picture of what's involved. And so, anyway, I digress uh, in a big way, but... Uh, it's fascinating. Uh, it really is. We're fast approaching the end, uh, and I, I would be remiss, seeing as you're a bit of a clairvoyant, w- what's exciting in your world? Well, it doesn't have to be a, a predictions. It's more for your world uh, that you're in control of. What What's exciting for you in the coming year ahead? I can tell you what I'm working on that I hope lands, and that is a, a project It's really a continuation for me, but this one is focused on the M&A life cycle. It comes out of a presentation I gave to the technology subcommittee for the ABA M&A section, where I walk them through a full M&A life cycle with the question being, what would an objective-driven, process-oriented, tech-enabled transaction look like using currently available tech and services. And it was very well received. And the reason I think it was well received is that it presented an integrated view that gave the attending lawyers context for the tools, made them familiar, and gave them some sense of how they fit together in a workflow that matters to the lawyers themselves, as opposed to simply listing cool tech out there, which often doesn't land at all. And so with that, I am working on a project to write annotated RFIs for clients to use, Mm -hmm. for firms to use as self-assessment, with the idea that if we can standardize questions, it will reduce an enormous amount of friction in the ecosystem as well as improve the quality of conversations. When I reference this being a continuation, the guidebook that I wrote was full of generic questions 
that I thought law departments should ask law firms. In fact, the title of the book is Unless You Ask. And ironically, I ended up having to answer those generic questions when I was back at a law firm. The point, I thought, was for law departments to take those generic questions and conform them to their context to make them specific and useful. But instead, they just asked the generic questions to which they got generic answers, helping almost no one. My hope is that by being much more specific and targeted, we can improve the discourse so we have better questions and better answers. And not just better answers because they're expertly crafted from a marketing perspective, but better answers because they reflect an improving and evolving underlining service delivery reality. And that client interest and client involvement will help serve as urgency drivers. We made reference to the pandemic and you talked about necessity being the mother of invention. Not much was invented. In fact, most of that infrastructure was already in place. It just wasn't in use. And that is true at a lot of firms. A lot of firms have acquired tech that would be very useful if it were used. Yeah. But it isn't because they have not gone through the effort of adoption because clients don't seem to care. And unless clients care, neither do the lawyers who work for them. And frankly, that's fair. We're, we're all in this together. It should be a communal effort. Yeah, we could go on and we might have to do a continuation, Casey. Uh, but for today, we, we come to the end of the discussion. Thank you so much for joining us on Legally Vocal. It's been an absolute pleasure hearing about your experiences, Casey, and learning a bit more about the world of legal. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Legally Vocal from Aperio. Join the conversation on LinkedIn or Twitter at Legally Vocal.